start with Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, if you'd like to follow along. Genesis 22, 1 through 5. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And in Acts chapter 9 verses 10 through 17, Acts 9, 10 through 17. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas... Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And our sermon text is from Luke 9, verses 23 to 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Father and our God, as we open these scriptures today, may you open our hearts. May you pour your words of life into our hearts. And may they not escape except to proclaim those words back to others except to proclaim those words of praise and worship to you, except that we may live daily in your power, in Christ, for you. For it is in the name of Jesus who bought our ransom with his blood that we pray this. Amen. You ever read something that Jesus said and you think, I don't think I'd have said that. You know, Jesus, that's just not the way you make disciples. That's not the way you win friends and influence people. You know, that's that's not really being friendly to people. That's not how you, you know, get people to join what you're doing. This passage, this verse in particular, we're only going to look at verse 23 is polarizing. It is off-putting. It's distasteful. It's abhorrent to most people. It's countercultural. But it is essential. Essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the context. Where does this come from? Where does this come out of? It comes on the heels of just a few verses before who do the crowds say that I am? And then Jesus says to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? This is a question we must all ask. And actually, it's a question that God asks of everyone. Who is this one called Jesus? This is the most important question will ever be asked. The most important question we'll ever face. Who is Jesus Christ? Just a man? A liar? A lunatic? A fool? Somebody would say outrageous statements like this? Or is this truly who he claimed he is? The Son of God who came to save his people. Then he makes this statement. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is not an isolated verse. This isn't hidden somewhere in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus, which we kind of gloss over when we're reading it. And I know you all read your Bibles, and you get to Leviticus, and you do the Evelyn Wood speed reading method or you're listening to it on audio and you put it on, you know, 1.5 or 2 speed. I've done it. Not in Chronicles, one of those long lists of genealogies, you know, just buried in there somewhere. It's right out in the open. And it wasn't spoken just to a few dedicated, passionate, hardened, fanatical, zealous followers. Notice he said, and he said, to all. It says this also in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and also in Luke 14. He gives a similar statement. 
he says to all, not just those who are already his disciples. Anyone, anyone. This is an open invitation. Jews, Gentiles, saints, sinners. Example of this is in John chapter 3. Jesus meets with a man called Nicodemus. He is one of the elite of the Jewish nation. Not only a civil leader, but also a religious leader. A member of the Sanhedrin, but also a Pharisee. He's sort of like, the Sanhedrin sort of like the Senate and the judicial branch all rolled into one. And then the Pharisees, they're the religious elite of the day. He's talking to somebody that has great wisdom, great knowledge of the scriptures, but there's one thing he doesn't have, and that's the knowledge of salvation that only Christ can give. And Jesus is extending that to him. But then in the next chapter, we see Jesus talking to not another religious leader, not somebody that's in the nation of Israel, not somebody that's looking for Christ, but he's in a country called Samaria, a country of people that were hated by the Jews, disdained by them, looked down upon them. And Jesus offers the water of life to this woman at a well who's lived a sinful life her whole life. Anyone. And he says, come after me. If anyone would come after me, to follow him, to be his disciple. That means to believe in him, but also to follow him in discipleship, in obedience. You cannot have one without the other. You can't be a believer and not a disciple. Or not a disciple. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. They follow me. They obey him. Come after me, Jesus says not come after me following from a distance. Not following Jesus on Twitter or Facebook or from the sidelines. Not following in silence like a secret service Christian. Not following without a cost. We'll see. He must deny himself, Christ says deny himself, meaning Christ must be first in your heart, first in your thoughts, must be followed in a way in which your life is lived out and seen by others that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, putting Christ before your wishes, your wants, your desires. When we do that, what does the psalm say? Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That 
sounds on the surface really, really good. I really want a lake house. I really want a new Mercedes. I really want a new Beretta shotgun. No, that's not what it means. Christ will give you the desires of your heart, meaning he will change your desires to be in line with his, wanting to serve him, wanting to love him, wanting to obey him, wanting to follow him, be his disciple. And he will give you that desire. How does this happen? Through our determination, through our willpower. This is January 1st. A lot of resolutions are going to be made. But tomorrow will be broken. Now, what does Paul say to his Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are new creatures in Christ. We are made anew. Why? So that we can just do our thing, go to that lake house on Saturday and Sunday and skip church? No, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We are to become his disciples. It happens through the new creation. It happens through the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart read in Ezekiel 36 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh a new heart that's where they get those new desires from and that new spirit that comes with it in verse 27 and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Spirit of Christ will come into your heart when you're reborn, born anew. You will have a new heart, new desires. And Jesus says, we are to take up our cross anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. There is not a person in that audience that would not have understood what that meant. It's just, that's a one-way trip. You take up your cross, you're not going to a retreat. You're not going to a Ligonier conference. You're not going to a party. You are going to die. It would be like saying, we used to ex execute people by the electric chair. It would be like saying, I want you to help wire the chair up for me. Or I want you to braid the noose that we're going to hang you with. Pick up your cross. That would not have been lost on anybody there. And he says to do this, 
daily. Daily. There's a common misconception. You become a believer and you can kind of just sit back and wait and one day you become a disciple. No, you're to be a disciple on day one. Day one. You don't wait. You don't sit around. We don't get a year off or a sabbatical or six months, ten years, whatever, and then well, I think I'll be a disciple now. Now we're to pick up that cross daily. And then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me, not the world. Where's the world going to lead you? Everywhere but the cross. Not following the devil. We are commanded to believe and have faith in God alone and not following our own worldly passions or lust, greeds, or desires. How do we do this? Why would we do this? It's so foreign. So much against our nature. We have a fight or flight nature. Look at somebody and says, pick up the cross. What are you going to do? It's like, pick up a rattlesnake. I came from the south. We just, you see a snake, you shoot him. You know, shoot first, identify later is my motto with snake. Pick up that cross. How do you do that? I like to look at the disciples. How did they learn to do this? And why would they even want to do this? They knew what the cross meant. They were to see Christ crucified. And in every Roman city where Rome was an occupying force, they would execute people very publicly, often on a hill like in Jerusalem or on the roads leading into the town. So when you were going into the village to sell your grain or to trade animals or do commerce, you would see what happened to those that opposed Rome. They were on the cross. at the disciples where did they what what happened even at the very end of Jesus's ministry in Matthew 28 and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up to him took hold of his feet and worshiped him that's really good that's a really good thing they did they worshiped Christ. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They're afraid. And in verse 11, uh, 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee in the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's good. They're afraid. But they're still worshiping. What's the next phrase say? But some doubted. They just saw the resurrection. They just saw Christ come out of the grave. And they're doubting. They're afraid. They're in hiding. And even just moments before Christ's ascension... They're asking questions. Still not sure what's going on. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Are you going to strap on the sword and kill the Romans and drive them out of here? They're afraid, they're doubting, and they still don't understand what Jesus' full purpose is. What happened? How did they go from scared to doubting, not understanding, to what Luke says at the end of his gospel, where after the resurrection, they returned to Jerusalem, not still scared, not still doubting, not still asking those dumb questions like, he's gone, how's he going to kill the Romans? What's going to happen? They returned to Jerusalem, Luke says, with great joy. With great joy, they came back after they've seen Jesus for possibly the last time. How did that happen? I think three things happened to cause this. The first was they heard the last words of Christ. The last thing he said to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Pembroke, in Concord, in New Hampshire, all of the earth. They heard the words of Christ. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing is they saw Jesus. They didn't see the everyday garden variety Jesus that they saw for three years. The Jesus that they walked with talked with, learned from, were taught how to pray, that they ate dinner with, they slept next to, they talked around the campfire, they brushed their teeth with. It wasn't the Jesus they saw. And it wasn't even the resurrected Jesus that they saw. Because when they saw the resurrected Jesus, what are they saying? Are you going to kill the Romans? We're not sure what's going on. We're afraid of the repercussions of what just happened. No. They saw something they had never seen before. Verse 9 of Acts 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They, for the first time, saw not the everyday Jesus, not the brushing your teeth, eating dinner Jesus, not the resurrected Jesus, but the glorified Christ as he's going back to the Father 
where he's always been from all eternity and will always be for all eternity to come. They saw the glorified, resurrected, perfected Christ where he needs to be in heaven. They heard the last words of Christ. They saw the glorified Christ and the promised Holy Spirit was finally revealed to them. John 14, Jesus had said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you. He's already in you as a new believer and will be in you. And in Acts chapter 2, it was finally revealed to them. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. First time they knew what the Spirit of God was like they heard the words of Christ. They had the Holy Spirit revealed to them. And they saw the resurrected, glorified Christ as he's going into heaven. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, we must take up the cross. We must take up the cross. If we are true believers, we must take up the cross. Denying ourselves, we must take up the cross daily in humble obedience, in faith, take up the cross. In the power of Christ, in Christ, take up the cross. I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians at Christ's present in Ashua. Interesting book. You're probably familiar with it. The first three chapters are a lot of doctrine. The last three chapters, a lot of commandments. The first three chapters, there's only one or two declarative command statements. The last three chapters, dozens of them. But there's a little interesting two-word phrase, or sometimes three, that's mentioned 34 times in the book of Ephesians. And it's the phrase, and it's mostly mentioned in the first three chapters when he's talking about doctrine. It's the term, in Christ. We live our lives in Christ, in the power of Christ, in his strength. If we are true believers, we must be taking up our Christ, cross, denying ourselves daily in faith. And if these marks are missing in our lives, 
you would do well to look at 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Test yourselves that Christ is in you. Test yourselves looking inward at your heart. Test yourselves to look at your daily walk with Christ. Is it daily? Is it lifelong? Is it consistent? Are there patterns of belief and obedience? Will there be times that we fail? Will there be times that we sin? Will there be times that we stumble? Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes daily, for 99.9999% of it's hourly. But we must continue to pray for God's sanctifying work in our hearts, for true repentance, for reliance on his grace. Will it be hard to take up the cross? Yes. You think it was easy for Jesus to pick up the cross? I mean, just in a physical sense I'm talking about. I mean, that wasn't like a little two-by-four that you get at Home Depot. That was like a, a railroad tie type of device. I mean, heavy, heavy, rough beam of wood. It's going to be hard to do that. You only need to look at the apostles to know that. What was their lifespan like? It was shorter than most. They were not people that Prudential would want as clients. Every one of them but one did not die a natural death. Only Apostle John. And he had been tortured to the point of almost dying, but somehow survived and then was exiled to the island of Patmos. Taking up their cross daily. Now, there's an interesting passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, where there's this great sort of hall of fame of faith for believers in the Old Testament. At the end of his, the writer's little list of people like Abraham and Moses, and Abel, people like that, he says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail to for me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Wow! That's cool stuff. I mean, that's encouraging. Look at what happened in the Old Testament. Great stuff. Great heroes of the faith. Great successes. Great victories. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, that is, killed with stones, not 
smoking crack. They were sawn in two. That is, while they were alive, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Following Christ has always been hard. Following Christ always has a cost. Salvation is free. The grace of God is free. It costs you nothing, but it will cost you everything to live it out. Denying yourself, picking up your cross, following Christ. What does Jesus say to those that pick up the cross? What does Jesus say? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That's kind of what we are. We're little children following Christ. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, and all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Before I go on, let me just say, little children. He's saying, follow me, little children. In other words, you're not going to wait, and I said this earlier, you're not going to wait until you've developed some sort of spiritual maturity before you start following Christ and picking up that cross. You're going to have to do this from day one. You're not going to get a pass and say, when you're 50 or older, when you're looking at the grave, when you're retired, whatever, then you can start picking up the cross. We pick up the cross when we are made believers in Christ. Like I said, that's hard, and that has a great cost. We saw those people that have died in the past. But what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. you're taking up the cross, are you picking it up alone? No. No. If you see a farmer, which we don't see a lot of farmers in the fields these days, especially with oxen, because we live in a fairly mechanized society, if you were to go back 200 years and see an ox and two ox and a yoke, they're kind of equally yoked together. I mean, that ox yoke is level, and the two ox are pretty much the same size, and they're burying the burden together. That's the way it is with Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am, am I harsh and vindictive? No. Am I punitive and condemning, and you pick up the cross 
by yourself? No. Am I passive and indifferent? You know, you, you know, pick it up when you're ready, or I don't care if you pick it up or not, you're still going to have to do it on your own. No, for the first and only time, not for the first, for the only time Christ tells us exactly what is in his heart. And he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's going to be hard, though. I just watched for the second or third time, and I read the book when I was in my 20s about um, Richard Wormbrand, who was a Romanian pastor. And the book was called Tortured for His Faith back then, and the movie shows him um, in one scene where he's being beaten, and they would actually tie him to a bar and beat the bottom of his feet. And later in life, he could hardly walk unaided. And he bore scars all over his body from the torture he received. And, and in this scene, his tormentor is saying, you don't, you're not your own anymore. You belong to me. I'm your, you know, I have total power of you to, to beat you or to not beat you. And he's beating him and he says to Pastor Wormbrand, who do you belong to? And he says, not me. And there's this sort of a smile comes over the tormentor's face. He thinks he's starting to you know, win. And he says, I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. And when he said that, do you think his tormentor said, oh, that's wonderful. Let's just leave the prison and we'll go to the other prison where your wife is get her out of jail, and then we'll go to the streets of Bucharest and find your son who's homeless because you can't give shelter to somebody that's a political prisoner. No. He continued the beatings, the torture for decades, over a decade, suffering like that for Christ. But he would be the first to say, the yoke is easy. And the burden is light. The yoke is easy. The burden is light. And for those that do take up that cross, the brother of Jesus wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Excuse me, I'm James, not Jude. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised for those who believe. And John, after he had been tortured by boiling to kill him and didn't die, wrote from the Isle of Patmos, records the words of Christ, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And I'm sure that 10 days is a metaphorical expression there. Be faithful unto death, and I, that is Jesus saying this, will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. And in Matthew we read, Well done, 
good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's going to be hard. Taking up your cross is not easy. But Jesus doesn't ask us to do something without first setting the example. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Who was it that went out to the place of the skull? Who was it that took up his cross? Who was it that carried it that long road from downtown Jerusalem to the place of the skull? It was the Alpha and the Omega. The Almighty, the author and perfecter of our faith, the captain of our salvation, the chosen one, the Christ, the consolation of Israel, the chief cornerstone, Emmanuel, the firstborn among many brothers, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of all creation, the friend of tax collectors and sinners, the great shepherd of the sheep, our great high priest, he who holds the keys of David, he who is coming among the clouds, the Holy One of God, the image of God, the judge of all the world, the King of Israel, the King of kings, the King of nations, the King of the dead and the living, the King of the Jews, the Lamb of God, the last Adam, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of the dead and the living, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of all, the Lord of lords, the Lord of peace, our mediator, the Messiah, the mighty God, the morning star, the Prince of Peace, the Redeemer, the Root of Jesse, the Ruler of the Kings of the Earth, the Ruler and Savior, the Savior of the world, the Second Adam, the Shepherd and Guardian of our souls, the Beloved Son, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of the Father, the Son of the Living God, the Son of the Most High God, the only Son of the Father, the source of God's creation, the living stone, the true God, the one who is and was and is to come, the wonderful Counselor, the Word of God, the Word of life. Why did he endure the cross? Why did he pick up the cross? Why did he walk that road? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God? The joy. The joy that was set before that is so puzzling. The joy that is set before him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you did, that you gave me to do. The joy of Jesus was obeying and glorifying Jesus to endure the cross, to obey, was to glorify the Father. And one day, there will be even greater joy. Greater joy than that. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us exalt and rejoice and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross to glorify and obey his Father. And he endured the cross so that one day he will present you as his bride to the Father. You ever go to a wedding? What happens right after the wedding ceremony? There's the reception, and you want to see smiles. You look at that groom when he's presenting his bride to the guests there. There is great joy. Great joy to see that. And Christ will present you as his bride to the Father. Christ has carried his cross, suffered, died, made a substitutionary, sacrificial, and sufficient payment for your sin, granted you the right to be his child, granted you the right to be his bride. What ground do we have to deny his simple request? Take up your cross daily. Our Father and our God, this is hard stuff. Some of us might have really cushy jobs and lives and families and great cars and houses and it looks really good. Some of us are struggling with unemployment or homelessness or addiction, poverty. All of us struggle with sin. All of us will face temptations in life. All of us are not immune to cares and the toils and the travails of this life. 
seen a, a parent die of an incurable disease, having a child suffer through a mental illness or an addiction or dying before you, losing a spouse, being asked to do something by an employer that we know is morally wrong, being made ridiculed and mocked by neighbors or friends or, or what's worse, family, a father or a, a son or a sister or brother. It's hard to take up the cross at those times, Jesus. It's hard. We just want to walk away. Turn our backs. Say, this, is, this isn't for me. Help us to remember it's not really a heavy burden. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be mean to minimize that but you are the one that said your burden is easy your burden is light grant us the faith to believe that everything about our being with that old sin nature in us wants to say you're lying there's something's wrong What's in it? You know, what, this is just not, it can't be that good. That old nature just, just wants to distrust you. Wants to walk away. Wants to deny you. Just deny ourselves. us to embrace the cross. As Corey Ten Boom said, bless you, prison. I can't imagine it was fun sleeping with rats and fleas and in the cold and hunger. But somehow she's able to say, bless you, prison. Give us that same spirit, that same faith, that same love for you. Bind Satan in our hearts. Bind Satan. Cast him away. So that we can take up the cross. Follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.